Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. New York City is in a state of emergency over heavy flooding. Subway systems are disrupted and highways shut down. A major breakthrough in the 1996 killing of rapper Tupac Shakur. The man is now in custody and charged with murder. The divided Congress still far apart on a solution to keep the lights on past the weekend's deadline. And tension within the Republican Party after a failed vote this afternoon. A California icon with an extraordinary legacy. U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein dies at age 90. How will her seat be filled? Former President Trump visits California. After snubbing the debate in the state, he's now at another GOP event. Find out what he said. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. appears to be picking up momentum. He shares what he wants to do for Americans at his newly opened campaign headquarters. Torrential downpours triggered flash flooding in New York City today, shutting down parts of the city's transportation system. Local authorities have declared a state of emergency. In New York City, up to five inches of rain fell in some areas overnight into Friday, following a week of steady rainfall. A flash flood warning was in effect for the city until midday, and Mayor Eric Adams urged people to stay put if possible. I am issuing a state of an emergency for New York City uh, based on the weather conditions. And I want to say to all New Yorkers, uh, this is time for heightened alertness and extreme caution. Uh, if you are home, stay home. If you are at work or school, shelter in place for now. The city reported no storm-related deaths or critical injuries as of Friday afternoon, but the floods caused major disruptions to the city's subway system and the Metro North commuter rail service. The rainfall also shut down Manhattan's FDR Drive and delayed flights at LaGuardia Airport. There are significant portions of the subway system that are shut down. We are starting the process of reactivating certain lines, but when water covers the uh, electrified third rail, we have to do inspections so that that will be unfolding slowly. Some 18 million people in the New York metropolitan area and in other major cities along the East Coast were under flood warnings, watches and advisories. New York Governor Kathy Hochul declared a state of emergency for New York City, Long Island and the Hudson Valley. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. A major breakthrough in a murder case following decades of investigation. A man has been arrested and charged with murder over the 1996 killing of rapper Tupac Shakur in Las Vegas. A Nevada grand jury indicted Dwayne Davis, who goes by Kef D, in connection to the killing. Davis was arrested this morning while on a walk near his home. Authorities said he was the commander who ordered Shakur's death. He was one of the last living witnesses to the fatal drive-by shooting in September 1996. Shakur was in a car and waiting at a red light when a white Cadillac pulled up next to him and gunfire erupted. He was shot multiple times and died a week later at the age of 25. The suspect has long been known to investigators and has himself admitted that he was in the Cadillac. The judge denied him bail. 
Republicans today failed to pass their short-term funding bill to keep the government open with a possible shutdown just one day from now. Right now, both parties are far apart on a spending solution that can pass the divided Congress. This has calls for ousting Speaker McCarthy appear to have died down. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. Melina, first tell us about the vote Republicans took today. This bill that the House voted on today was a short-term funding bill to keep the government open through the end of October, but it also included some changes to border policy. Speaker Kevin McCarthy hoping that these border policy provisions would be enough to shore up the support needed within his own party, arguing this point shortly before today's vote. I can't understand why someone would side with President Biden on, on keeping the border open. But this vote failed with 21 Republicans voting against it, causing some tensions within the Republican Party. They killed the most conservative position we could take um, and then called themselves the real conservatives. They made a bad vote. That's my position. Some who voted against the bill told me that the process is botched. We, were here, we should have been here the whole month of August working on this. September 30th comes around about this time every year. And yet this is where we're at. It's 7 o'clock at night. The sun's going down and we don't have lights. So now let's panic. And that's what we've done here. We've waited too damn long. And all I've seen is failures. We need to do our job, which is pass appropriation bills, and then none of this is an issue whatsoever. Bubbling up around this spending fight and the potential government shutdown, we've seen reports that some frustrated members in the GOP are considering taking a vote to oust Speaker McCarthy. But today it seems like that push has lost steam. Are you going to continue to introduce that motion to vacate next week? Well, my focus right now is on these single subject spending bills. We're going to have to deal with the fact that we've had failed leadership, but right now I'm singularly focused on getting our appropriations bills up and heard. But even if the House does pass all 12 of those appropriations bills over this weekend, there's still a challenge in that Democrat-controlled Senate, which is going to refuse to bring those bills to the floor for a vote. The only solution here is for both chambers in this divided Congress to come together to find a government funding solution that can actually get the support needed from both parties as well as get President Biden's signature. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. California's longest-serving U.S. Senator has died. Diane Feinstein died at her home on Thursday. She was 90 years old. NTD's Arlene Richards reviews her legacy and what we can expect to happen in the Senate. Senator Diane Feinstein was considered a trailblazer, not only for her historical 31 years of service in the U.S. Senate, but also for her commitment to her positions. Her death on Thursday evening at the age of 90 has sparked heartfelt commentary from her colleagues, staff, and friends. Senator Dianne Feinstein was one of the most amazing people who ever graced the Senate, who ever graced the country. You know how we all refer to each other as my friend from whatever state it is. Honestly, frequently that's not true. Uh, but Elaine and I were actual friends of Dick and Diane. When they were in town together, we would frequently have dinner together. Feinstein, a Democrat, is remembered as the longest-serving female senator. Uh, senator Feinstein was a legend. She was an iconic public servant, and she earned and held the trust of voters throughout California for many years. President Biden said in a statement that she was a powerful voice for American values.
Feinstein became known for her tough stance on gun control and for passionately advocating for legislation. She wrote the 1994 ban on certain semi-automatic rifles. After it expired in 2004, she continued to push for its revival. Diane made her mark on everything from national security to the environment, to gun safety, to protecting civil liberties. The country's going to miss her dearly. In 2021, Feinstein supported President Biden's efforts to improve relations with China. She had been a defender of China since becoming mayor of San Francisco in 1978 and supported granting most favored nation trade status to China in 2000. Her final years in the Senate were marked by controversy as she suffered from failing health and refused to step down. Her death now puts pressure on California Governor Gavin Newsom to appoint a temporary replacement. He had originally vowed to appoint a black woman to fill the seat, but recently he changed his mind. That said, it's my job, it's my responsibility. If we have to do it, we'll do it. Interim appointment, I don't want to get involved in the primary. So no, you would not appoint anybody on that, is, that is filed for this race? It would be completely unfair to the Democrats that have worked their tail off. That primary is just a matter of months away. Feinstein's seat is up for re-election in January 2025 as Senate Democrats face a slim majority. Leading Democratic candidates expected to run for her seat are Representatives Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee. Feinstein's Chief of Staff James Sauls said in a statement that she left a legacy that is undeniable and extraordinary. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Is the evidence against President Biden sufficient to proceed with the impeachment process? What is the next step? To find out, we spoke with Mark Ruskin, a former assistant DA in Brooklyn and retired FBI agent. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Right now, Republicans are launching an impeachment inquiry. So far, no articles of an impeachment have been introduced yet. Republicans are using this as an opportunity to show the evidence they have. What did you make of the evidence that was shown so far? Well, I, I would suggest that the evidence shows what's required, which is probable cause. You know, at this point, there's no need for any uh, party to prove anything. Uh, and I notice that some of the... Uh, congressmen who oppose the procedure are arguing that there isn't enough evidence to impeach the president. But that's not the issue at this point. The issue is not if there's enough evidence to impeach. It's simply if there's enough evidence to proceed, probable cause is what's needed here. Democrats are saying that there is no evidence, but you're saying it's not actually that, you just need enough. So is there enough for probable cause right now? I would suggest that this certainly sufficient to establish probable cause and uh, and it's certainly sufficient to proceed i think it's unfortunate that it's been divided now into a political process it really and it's been you know going on for a few years now this in a trial there should be a search for truth and justice not for political gain which seems to be have been the case in the recent years now it seems to really be a, a nonpartisan, really, I would suggest, procedure in that what is being sought is the truth and, and fact and evidence, not a political uh, you know, propaganda of sorts. And what is at the root of this impeachment into Biden? Is it that 
President Biden knew about his son Hunter Biden's business dealing, or is it the countries involved, as in China, Ukraine? What is at the ultimate root of this? Well, I, I would suggest it's a mix of all. You know, when, when these constitution was first promulgated, the founders specifically included treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So they thought that bribery was sufficiently important as a crime to be enumerated in the Constitution. And in this case, what we're looking at is potential uh, bribery by the president through his son and other family members and through a variety of foreign uh, agents and countries. So it's a very uh, serious accusation that need to be followed uh, to the end uh, so that the public has trust and confidence in its government. And some are pointing to the tensions between the U.S. and China right now or the ongoing war in Ukraine. How does that tie into this impeachment inquiry? Well, I would suggest that they are related but not uh, directly essential to proving uh, uh, that there is a, a case and it is to establishing probable cause. They're tangentially involved in that if there has been bribery involving other sovereign states, I would suggest that that adds to the seriousness of these acts if they are, in fact, proven to be true. And on that last note, what is next in terms of this impeachment inquiry into President Biden? Well, at this, the next stage is for a simple majority vote by Congress which would be sufficient to establish articles of impeachment. After that, it would go to the Senate, and there would be essentially the, uh, similar to a full-blown trial where the chief justice of the Supreme Court would preside, since it's a presidential impeachment, and the Senate would then decide by a two-thirds vote whether or not to impeach the president. And were he to be impeached, then it, removal would be the next step. And since the impeachment process has been utilized at the beginning of the uh, establishment of the, the government, in half of the cases, there has been impeachment and removal. And in some cases, the president has been barred from holding federal office subsequent to the impeachment uh, conviction. And zooming out, what is the impact of this impeachment and previous ones like the ones into Trump have on the public especially? Well, I would suggest that if they're conducted in what appears to be and is in fact an impartial manner, that it enhances the public confidence in the ability of the government to self-regulate itself. It's really part of the tripartite form of government that we have the checks and balances between the Judiciary Congress and the executive. And this is reinforced, and the public uh, trust is reinforced if it's conducted in a fair and impartial manner that is nonpartisan. And I believe that will be the case here. Mark Ruskin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. RFK Jr.'s campaign appears to be gaining momentum. His team just opened up a new headquarters in New Jersey. There, the presidential candidate explained how he'll help Americans and, quote, drain the swamp. NTD's Jason Perry attended the grand opening. I believe that President Trump wanted to drain the swamp, but he just didn't know how. 
I know how to do it. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Democratic presidential candidate, spoke at his newly opened campaign office in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and he said this about Trump. And he appointed Scott Gottlieb, Pfizer's partner, business partner, to run the FDA. And Gottlieb went in there and did an $88 billion favor for Pfizer and left to join Pfizer's board. Then RFK Jr. explained how he knows how to, quote, drain the swamp. I brought over 500 lawsuits against these companies. I've sued all of these agencies. I've sued DOD. I've sued FCC. I've sued USDA. I've sued EPA, NIA, CDC, FDA, all of them. And when you sue them, you get a PhD and how to unravel corporate capture. Corporate capture is a term which refers to regulatory agencies being dominated or influenced by the industries they are supposed to regulate. And he explained how the relationship between the U.S. military and the defense industry, also known as the military-industrial complex, has affected average Americans. He also highlighted the war in Ukraine, noting that by March of this year, the U.S. had approved $113 billion in aid to Ukraine. And that same month, by the way, we cut Medicare in this country by... We cut 30 million people, 15 million people from Medicare, and we cut 30 million people, 30 million Americans food stamps from $283 a month to $23 a month. Try feeding yourself on $23 a month. Kennedy also pointed out in that same month, the government provided a $300 billion bailout to banks. And then he explained what he's going to do for Americans, given that over the past two years, housing prices have gone up significantly and mortgage interest rates have more than doubled from about 3% to 7%. As I said before, we kicked off the great prosperity in this country, that 50 years that you know, economists and social scientists, where we became the richest country on earth. We started it with a housing boom. And as soon as I get into office, I'm going to launch another housing boom. I'm going to issue a new class of mortgages for 3%. Uh, for I'm going to finance that by selling treasury bills at 3% that are tax-free. So the market will pay for it. Kennedy just laid out his economic plan here in his newly opened New Jersey campaign headquarters. And he stayed after his speech to take selfies with everyone. If you want to watch Kennedy's full speech, you can visit NTD.com. Jason Perry, NTD News, New Jersey. Turning now to former President Trump's Georgia elections case, one of Trump's co-defendants has pleaded guilty to five misdemeanor counts. Bail bondsman Scott Hall is the only one of 19 defendants to take a plea deal with the prosecutors in Fulton County. The agreement recommends a five-year probation and a $5,000 fine. Hall is also required to testify against other defendants. During this, Trump is making an appearance in California after skipping the debate in the state. Now he's at the fall 2023 GOP convention. NTD's Christina Corona was on site at the beginnings of Trump's speech. Let's take a look. Hi, Tiffany. Yes, we are here at the Marriott Hotel where former President Donald Trump is speaking at the GOP convention. Thank you very much. And I'm thrilled to be in this beautiful place. Boy, are they... Are they messing up California? But 
We're thrilled to be here with the conservative patriots who are leading the charge to take back this state from the radical left lunatics. I did speak to a few attendees, and here is what they said. When he shows his strength with what everybody's doing to him, he still shows that fortitude, he shows that smile, and he gives us the strength that we can continue fighting even in where we are in California. I hope he addresses the economy. Uh, personal interest of me is the fentanyl crisis. I, last year I lost my oldest daughter uh, to fentanyl and it's time that this get taken care of. What I'm hoping is that he starts addressing what's happening in California as far as our budget. I mean, we're $25 billion in a hole. Importing, still importing another $25 billion a year in oil when we shut down everything here, the border, the taxes. I mean, it just, it's an endless list. Simple enough, being able to follow the Constitution. Lots of good scholars out there, but what we need is the, not just the brains, but the brawn. What we really want is to find things that are reasonable, practical, that can be done without you know, knocking the whole country's economy flat on its back. During his speech, Trump covered issues ranging from California's forest and water management to wildfires and homelessness. He added a lot of policies are also harming the state's farming industry. On a more national level, he criticized the rising gas prices and the push for electric vehicles, saying it harms workers' ability to get fair wages and job stability. Trump also took a few moments to criticize Biden's administration, saying too much money is being sent overseas. He has been traveling all across America all week and will travel to Ottawa, Iowa Sunday. He is set to hold a Commit to Caucus event and to deliver policy remarks largely focused on agriculture. Tiffany, back to you in New York. Coming up, the United Auto Workers expanding its historic strike once again, hitting two of the three big automakers. The union's leader announced new plans this morning. NTD Business's Don Ma breaks it down for us. And another potential strike, this time in health care. If 75,000 Kaiser permanent employees walk off the job, it could be the largest health care strike in U.S. history. We'll have details after the break. Welcome back. As the United Auto Workers strike continues, UAW President Sean Fain announced that the work stoppage will be expanded. We spoke with NTD Business's host Don Ma for more. Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, good to be here, Tiffany. Don, what is the latest in this strike? Yeah, so at noon today, the UAW expanded the strike. Uh, its president, Sean Fain, said this at 10 a.m. Uh, he's calling on an additional 7,000 members to go on strike across Ford and GM. So for Ford, right, uh, the Chicago assembly plant is targeted. And for GM, uh, the GM Lansing Delta assembly plant is targeted. And Fain said that negotiations haven't really broken down, but talks at Ford and GM haven't made meaningful progress either. Um, but despite that, no additional members will go on strike at Stellantis because Fain said that there has been some progress in negotiations with them. So at noon uh, earlier today, a total of 25,000 members will be on strike. 
And Don, what is the impact of these additional 7,000 members potentially walking off? Yeah, so uh, the GM plant in Delta Township near Lansing makes large crossover SUVs, uh, such as the uh, Chevrolet Traverse. And at the Chicago, Chicago Ford plant, uh, it makes the Ford Explorer and Explorer Police Interceptors. And the Explorer Interceptor is actually the nation's top-selling police vehicle. Um, but on top of that, the union has vowed to also hit automakers harder if it does not receive improved contract offers. And on that note, wh where are the negotiations at right now? Sure. Uh, so Fain said that negotiations were moving slowly, uh, but uh, the automaker's last known wage offers were around 20% over the life of a four-year contract. So, you know, this is a little more than half of what the union is demanding. Uh, meanwhile, other contract improvements, uh, you know, like cost of living increases, restoration of defined benefit pensions for newly hired workers, and an end to tiers of wages within the union are also on the table. And how widespread are the strikes now with these additional 7,000 expected to walk off? So with an extra 7,000 striking, that would mean around 17% of the union's total members would be off the job. And because it's only 17%, this is allowing it to preserve its strike for longer, longer because its fund has around $825 million. But, you know, if, if more uh, union members go on strike, let's say if all of them uh, were on strike, the fund would be depleted in less than uh, three months. Uh, right now, the union has structured its walkout in a way that has allowed the companies, the automakers, to keep making pickup trucks and large SUVs. Uh, the company's top-selling and most profitable vehicles are, are not impacted. Uh, the union has shut down assembly plants in Missouri, Ohio, and Michigan, and those plants make mid-size pickup trucks, uh, commercial vans, and mid-size SUVs. Now, these vehicles will be impacted, uh, but they don't make as much profit as uh, the earlier vehicles. Um, so they're, they're, there's some strategy to what, what uh, Fane is doing. Sounds like it. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. In other labor news, healthcare may be the next sector to see a strike, potentially the biggest healthcare strike in U.S. history. NTD's Faye Quarter has more. Over 75,000 Kaiser Permanente workers from across the country will potentially strike from October the 4th through the 7th. Kaiser is one of America's largest health care providers. It has 12.7 million members, operates 622 medical offices, and provides health insurance. Many Americans would immediately feel the impact of a strike. Basically, pulling a massive part of the entire health care system out of commission. Paul Mueller is a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He says the likelihood of a strike is a toss-up. It's too early to tell. The workers want across-the-board raises, job protections, updates to medical benefits, and more notice before being asked to return to the office. They also say they're overworked because of staffing shortages. Kaiser said in a statement that it will continue to bargain in good faith until we reach a fair and equitable agreement. 
If they don't reach a deal after the initial strike in October, there could be an even longer strike in November, with even more workers participating. It will be significant in terms of uh, just delays on test results and not being able to go see a doctor or having to, to reschedule, find somebody else. It does have the potential to, you know, cause a little bit of an uptick in, in severe health problems. Kaiser says it has a plan in place if its workers do walk off the job. But the company hopes to reach an agreement before the September 30th deadline. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Coming up, a controversial gender affirmation bill is struck down in California. A father fighting for child custody calls the move a miracle and a victory. And did the Justice Department have help targeting a parental advocacy organization? We speak with a co-founder of the Moms for Liberty when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. Midnight tomorrow is the deadline for a possible government shutdown. House Republicans today failed to pass their short-term funding bill, which the Democrat-controlled Senate likely wouldn't have agreed to either. Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California passed away at the age of 90. She was the oldest member of Congress and had been a senator since 1992. A suspect was arrested and charged with the murder of rapper Tupac Shakur in 1996. He has said he was in the car that gunshots were fired from. New York City declared a state of emergency over heavy flooding. The downpour caused major disruptions to the subway system and shut down Manhattan's FDR Drive. A father fighting for child custody finds relief after California's governor vetoes a new bill. The bill would have made gender affirmation a consideration in child custody court disputes. The father says his three-year-old son's mother tried to raise their son as non-binary. NTD's David Lamb sits down with Harrison Tinsley. Welcome back to NTD News. So could you tell me what was your reaction when you found out that Governor Newsom vetoed AB 957. It's an absolute miracle. It's a huge victory for the parents of California. We worked so hard against that bill. That's the one I, I myself was fighting against, going to the Capitol, speaking on as a witness, talking to the legislators, the author of the bill. And I'm just so thankful that we were able to actually make a difference. Now, you told me that this bill was supposed to actually help you theoretically in your case with your son. Yeah, 957 could have theoretically given me custody because I'm affirming my son by treating him as a boy, which he adamantly says that he is, while his mother claims that he's non-binary, which he is not. However, it, it's a terrible bill, and I'm so thankful that it was vetoed because it's going to save thousands of kids and families regardless. In what way? Well, it's, a, it's of course about everybody in California. It's not just about me and my son, but in what way is that this bill would have created in family courts families being torn apart because parents would have used it to claim their kids as transgender to win in custody battles. And it, it would have been devastating. I mean, I think that this transgender stuff in, with children is the worst evil we're doing right now as a society, and it needs to stop. We need to tell kids the truth. It's not loving to affirm a delusion. It's loving to tell somebody the truth, even if that's hard. And we are confusing kids, and we have to say no more. This is the time in history where we put an end to it. 
Recently, you were at a San Jose school district school board meeting. What was the board meeting like? The board meeting was crazy. There was so much passion from both sides. It was really cool to be there and experience. And thankfully, there were so many parents that showed up on the side of just the basic truth that kids need to go to school for an education, not indoctrination, and that there shouldn't be any secrets kept from parents. We have a right to know everything that goes on with our children, and we have the right to protect them and keep them safe. And if we're not comfortable with something, we should be allowed to express that and protect our kids from that. And I'm super thankful that so many parents showed up to speak their minds. A point that's always brought up is some of the students don't feel safe at home um, due to feeling rejected based on their you know, gender ideology. Uh, do you think that's a, an issue or common with um, households nowadays? I think unfortunately it's becoming more and more common because society is pushing this nonsense into kids' brains. I think gender ideology doesn't belong anywhere near children. They can't comprehend a thing, things like that. They don't understand something so complex and abstract. I do not believe that there's parents that are actively harming their children because they're saying something about gender ideology. All that's happening is parents are speaking the truth to their kids and trying to help guide them to have the best possible life and outcome possible. And it's getting conflated as kids feeling unsafe. But the reality is, is all kids growing up, me included, you have arguments with your parents and things you don't agree on, but your parents are doing their best most of the time to help guide you and love you, and that's all it is. Harrison Tinsley, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure having you back on our show. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to stand up for kids. Is there a connection between the Justice Department's targeting of a parental advocacy group and the Southern Poverty Law Center's designating one prominent group as extremist? We speak with a co-founder of Moms for Liberty about the many challenges facing parents who want a stronger voice in their children's education. Tiffany Justice, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Really appreciate it, Tiffany. To begin, the Heritage Foundation is suing the FBI and DOJ on your behalf, Moms for Liberty. What are they trying to find out here? Yeah, we're trying to find out, is the SPLC talking about Moms for Liberty, about me and the co-founder Tina Deskovich with the Biden administration? And it seems like the answer is yes. Apparently, they have something to hide because they haven't replied to any of their requests for information. And why do you suspect that the FBI, DOJ, or the Biden administration is acting on the SPLC's behalf? You know, when COVID hit, parents had a lot of questions, right? Their schools were shut down and they were speaking out. They were very concerned about what they were seeing taught to their children. Um, and, and they asked a lot of questions. And I think what we saw was a reaction by the teachers union, the National School Board Association to go to the DOJ, right? And to instigate some action on the Biden administration to protect them. The truth is only three in 10 children in America are reading on grade level. And I have to be honest, I think it's something that the education industrial complex really wants to hide. And so what has been the fallout on your group, especially after the SPLC added your group to this hate and extremism report? Yeah, they put a target on the backs of American moms and dads, and there are people citing the SPLC designation and trying to use it to hurt us, to cancel us, to dox us, to shut us down, to threaten us, to justify violence in many times being suggested, and it's concerning to us. And, you know, we know what the SPLC designation has done with other groups in the past, and there's no doubt that it was meant to try to damage our reputation and our ability to be Americans and to have our voice heard, which is our constitutional right.
And Tiffany, I, I want to cite something you wrote. So you said that exercising our free speech rights to attend public school board meetings that decide how our public schools operate is not extremism, it is American. So how does the criticism that you all have received kind of reflect society's changing view on parents' goals in their children's education? The idea that parents getting involved in their children's education is somehow anti-government or extremist is just ridiculous. American parents want to have their voice heard at that very local level. And we endorsed in over 500 school board races in 2022 and over 275 candidates were elected to school board office. And 76% of those, Tiffany, were first time candidates. So what you see is a whole new group of people getting involved in American politics. And I think it's making the people in power very, very scared. And as we head into this 2024 election season, education has become a huge issue for all sides. What do you see as the solution here? more parents getting involved, more community conversations happening. We just had a town hall in Montgomery County, Maryland. We had Jewish parents, Christian parents, um, Mormon parents, Muslim parents coming together to talk about how we move forward to protect our kids. You know, unifying parents around parental rights is what's gonna save this country. At Moms for Liberty, we believe that, and we're gonna keep bringing parents together across the country. Tiffany Justice, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Coming up, is the U.S. already done for at the Ryder Cup? Find out just how bad day one was against Europe. And the crown jewels of French art. Our reporter was in the Palace of Versailles to bring you the largest ceiling painting in Europe. Stay tuned for the details after the break. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, it's day one of the Ryder Cup, and the U.S. is already down five points to Europe. What are the chances of coming back and winning? Uh, slim. You know, I know this is only one day, but this is only a three-day event. Uh, you know, they're already down five. Uh, you know, this is actually tied for Europe's best ever day one. They did the same thing back in 2004. They ended up winning that cup by a very wide margin. Pretty much what happened this morning, they swept the morning matches. Then in the afternoon, the Americans actually had leads in three of the, three of the four matches, but Europeans made some great shots at the end of all three matches, forced ties, and now they are, they're in a deficit. There's only 20 points left to be had. They're going to have to win 13, so it's not looking great for the Americans. And you've said the U.S. hasn't won in Europe since 1993. Is there such a thing as a home field advantage in golf? Yeah, this is about the only time you'll see it. You know, most golf events, it's 100 players. Each plays each other. You know, they're all playing the field. The crowd just kind of politely cheers for everyone. This is not that, though. This is Europe versus America. The crowd gets very rowdy. There's heckling going on. You know, players are human, too, uh, but sometimes they actually will taunt back. That's really what makes this probably the most intense and exciting golf event out there. The Super Bowl champion Chiefs play the Jets this Sunday at the MetLife Stadium, though the highlight might be a Taylor Swift appearance. What do you make of that? Yeah, I'm afraid for Jets fans, that might be their only highlight. You know, their offense has struggled since Aaron Rodgers went down. They have a very good defense, but if your offense can't sustain drives, you're just going to wear out your defense. 
I'm actually more interested in the Bills-Dolphins matchup. The Dolphins have come out swinging this year. They look great. The Bills we already knew would be great. Now, it's too early to say this game could potentially decide the division, but I think it's definitely going to be a good measuring stick, really, for both teams. Dave, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. Ceiling paintings in France are a feast for the eyes and the spirit, allowing the viewer to journey to another realm. That's the idea behind a famous mural at the Palace of Versailles, the Apotheosis of Hercules. Indeed, France correspondent David Vives reports from Versailles. Every year for two days in September, France's national monuments see long lines. The Heritage Days draw hundreds of thousands of visitors who marvel at French cultural jewels. Among them, ceiling paintings are not to be missed. Painted ceilings grace numerous locations across France, from medieval castles to great town halls, and they occupy a cherished and unique place in the history of art. While many of them are created purely for decorative and prestigious purposes, there are also those exceptional ceilings that narrate their own stories, designed to inspire the viewers to elevated thoughts and aspirations. The Italian and French Renaissance era was characterized by a marriage of different arts. The combining of sculptures, bas-relief and paintings enhanced the viewer's experience and created a special effect of grandeur in churches and castles. The residence of Louis XIV, the Palace of Versailles, is home to the largest ceiling painting in Europe. The Apotheosis of Hercules is a masterpiece by French painter François Lemoyne, which took him four years to complete. 142 divine beings depicted in an utmost precision celebrate Hercules reaching the heavens after passing by his earthly tribulations. You get the impression of an ascending effect, with the chariot of Hercules drawing our gaze towards the great luminous opening in the middle. There's a real presence of the heavens, in the sense that the deities of Olympus are there, hovering over our heads. The beings depicted are Greek divinities and allegories. Hercules is welcomed by Jupiter after he overcame his tribulations imposed by his wife Juno. He ascends on his chariot to meet the gods of Olympus. He is led by an angel called Love of Virtue. Contrary to how Hercules is commonly depicted, it's not physical strength that made him a hero in the mythology. Reaching the glory of immortality is not necessarily a question of demonstrating force or courage. In any case, not physical strength, that's for sure. On the contrary, it's necessary to fight against what is worst in oneself and to get rid of it. And this is what Hercules represents. It's the love of virtue that guides Hercules on his chariot and allows him not to be stopped by monsters. The monsters are the vices that besiege men. They are called anger, hatred and discord. And the most dangerous one, jealousy, which was said to be the closest to the hero, as it grabs Hercules' chariot until the end. Thanks to his moral qualities, Hercules was able to overcome the obstacles. His own virtues defeated the vices and the demons, and not just strength or courage, but his virtues, moral qualities, righteousness and endurance. Firmin says the mythological painting was created for the French king, but the message behind it was for everyone. The painter wrote that love of virtue can guide men to overcome any obstacle. What matters is to overcome all these obstacles, to go beyond, to become a superior man, 
to what man is and to reach divinity. It's one of the many stories the palace has to offer. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.